Have you ever tried to calculate your net worth? Your net worth, what you're absolutely worth, how much you have in your possession. Of course, net worth, we understand, is comprised not just of what you might have in your savings or your retirement account, but it also includes everything that you have. If you were to liquidate your possessions, your house, your car, anything of value which you own, your, your net worth would be uh, uh, figured by taking all of that together. What are you absolutely worth? If you were to absolutely get a hold of every dollar that you could grab, based on everything that you have or own, what would you be worth? Well, the world is real interested in that sort of thing. That's very important uh, in worldly estimation, your net worth is. Uh, for instance, if you were to go out and try to buy a house and get a mortgage loan, they would want you to calculate that for them. They would want to give, they would ask you a bunch of questions and have you fill out a lot of forms so that you could come to some conclusion about what is your net worth. Would you be surprised if I told you that actually your net worth is zero? That everybody here in, in, in real terms, especially as God views it, from His perspective, you really don't have anything that all you have is just temporarily entrusted to you and you are a steward of God's possession. In Psalm 50, verse 10 beginning, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. And so really... From his perspective, not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, which matters the most, we really don't have anything. We've just been entrusted for a while as stewards of the things that ultimately belong to God. Now, in regards to that notion of stewardship, what we want to do in our study this morning is we actually want to contrast two different stewards whose stories are revealed for us in the pages of God's Word, two, two different Two different episodes of stewardship, I guess is the way we would say it. And we want to look at that in our study this morning, hoping to learn from both a bad example and a good one as to the kind of stewards we ought to be concerning the things that God has blessed us to oversee while we are here. So two stewards contrasted is our study this morning. We stop here for just a minute to say thanks to all who are present. We're so glad you're here. We have a number of visitors this morning. We're grateful that you've come our way. We want you to know that you always have a welcome here, and we want you to come back every time you have a chance to be with us. Uh, we look forward to these times of worship and Bible study. Our primary objective is to honor and glorify our Father who is in heaven, but we also understand that a secondary important objective is that we all be edified and encouraged in important spiritual eternal things, and we pray that both of those things will be accomplished by our assembling together today. Thank you for being here to be a part of this. The first steward that I want to suggest to you is the man that we call from the Scriptures the rich young ruler. I don't know if you're making notes or not, but I could give you the Scripture references. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the story of this interchange with Jesus. Matthew 19, 16 through 22. That's what Timothy read for us just a moment ago. Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. And Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. Now, 
Actually, you have to put those accounts together to get this description that we're so familiar with, the rich young ruler. Matthew says he was young, and Luke says he was a ruler. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that he was rich, and so he was the rich young ruler. That's what we call him. Now, I want to go back with you uh, to the text, and instead of reading Matthew, which uh, Timothy already read. Let me read to you from Luke, in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, beginning verse 18, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, Do not steal, Do not bear false witness, Honor thy father and mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. What would we say about this fellow? As you, as you sort of dissect all the information that we have about this man, what would you say? Well, the first thing that I would point out to you is that he appears to have been a probably what the world at least would evaluate as a really good man. When Luke says that he was a ruler, probably indicates that he may have been a ruler of a, a local synagogue of the Jews. We know that the Jews met in various synagogues in their communities, and they would appoint a ruler over the synagogue. And, and probably when Luke says he was a ruler, it, it has reference to the idea of being a ruler in a local synagogue. But if that's the case, obviously he was quite a religious man. Mark points out that he came running to Jesus. He didn't just walk up to Jesus or encounter him accidentally. He sought him out and he came running to Jesus, Mark says. And that would indicate, and all of, this, all of the accounts actually indicate, that he was interested in eternal life. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Uh, it seems like he's interested in the right kind of things. A religious man interested in eternity. Furthermore, when Jesus spelled out certain requirements of the law of Moses, that guy knew those requirements. He was familiar with the law, and as we'll see in a moment, he indicated that he'd been busy keeping those commandments. As the world would judge this man, I think they would judge him as a good man, and of course, they would all probably be impressed with his success financially. He was a, a very rich man. He was, in fact, richly blessed. All of the accounts talk about him having, well, Matthew and Mark said he has great, great possessions, and Luke says that he was very rich. Now, I'm going to take that at face value. He has many great possessions. He is very rich. And so, again, as the world would view this guy, how, how does the world view that? Net worth, right? What's his net worth? What's he worth? Does he, if he grabs up every bit of money he can get his hands on, if he sells everything he possesses and turns it into money, what's this pot of money going to be worth? This guy is very rich. Okay, now think about that for a minute. Just stop. If, you stop, if the story stopped right there, you'd say, this guy is pretty good. He, he seems to be a religiously minded individual, and he's really been successful in life, and he's got great possessions. He's very rich. As the world would judge this individual, he's doing great. But now, 
as Jesus continues to deal with him, we see some of the problems begin to unfold. Remember, these things that he's got are not really his. He's just, a, he's just in temporary possession of God's thing. He's just a steward. How's he doing with his stewardship? Well, he's not doing so well. The text tells us in Matthew that he imagined that he could do some good thing in order to inherit eternal life. Notice Matthew 19, verse 16, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Here he exposes that he had a really limited view of godly service. Now, he had been the kind of guy who did this and earned money. Did that, earned some more money. Invest in that, get this much money. And so he, he was used to a one-to-one return. Do this, get this. Do that, get that. And he'd been successful in dealing through life that very way. And it seems that he may have tried to apply that kind of thinking to eternal life. Just tell me the thing I need to do. What good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Jesus said, come, take up the cross and follow me in Mark's account. But notice that Jesus uh, indicated that it would require a sustained commitment of service that would be necessary if he wanted eternal life. He says, take up the cross, come and follow me. And those are ongoing, kind. the way those are expressed are ongoing requirements. There's not one thing that you can do and check the box and say, I did that, I'm going to heaven when I die. That's just not possible. And that's not possible for us either. But he had, this good rich man had a view that he could earn his salvation by doing one thing or another, and that was wrong, of course. In fact, if you really think about it, this fellow had a pretty inflated opinion of himself. All three accounts, when Jesus specified some of these commands from the Old Testament law, all three accounts say something along this line. The young man responds when Jesus said, do this, do this, do this, from the old law. He says, all of these have I kept from my youth up. Actually, the guy is suggesting that he's flawless. That he, that he has been keeping commandments and doing so perfectly, even from the time that he was a youth. Now, I don't know if he necessarily actually meant that, but that's certainly what is suggested by his response. And that's totally unrealistic, right? For anybody to imagine that you've done all or done perfectly the things that are required, that's just not realistic. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. And Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to understand that. We need to be careful about imagining that we could do one thing that would earn us eternal life or that we've been doing all of the things as perfectly as we should. This fellow, we begin to see this fellow's thinking is sort of corrupted, right? He doesn't, he's not thinking very clearly. He's interested about spiritual things, but he's not thinking clearly about spiritual things. And it seems that the ultimate problem with him was that he was consumed with materialism. Jesus saw this as the major flaw in this young man's life. It's interesting that Mark's account says Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and then told him to abandon these material things that he cherished so much. 
The point has been made plenty of times, but it's certainly worth noting. Mark says Jesus loved him and then told him what was wrong with him. Sometimes people imagine that love means that you, that you overlook things, or love means sweep things under the rug, or certainly love means don't rebuke a person or tell them to correct anything about their life. Love means you just accept them as they are. No. Jesus loved this man, and then he proceeded to tell him what he needed to do. And when faced with that choice, give up the things that, that, that are consuming you, give up your material worldly possessions. When faced with that choice, he chose wrongly. And so, he viewed these things as his own. He didn't see himself as a mere temporary steward of these things that God had blessed him with. He chose wrongly. If you look in Mark 10, at the account that Mark gives us there, it's interesting that in the verses that immediately follow this exchange with the rich young ruler, in Matthew 10, beginning verse 23, Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. That was what this fellow's problem was, right? He was trusting in his riches. He didn't, he didn't seem to have a view that these were just temporarily things that were his, that he was only a steward for a little while of the things that God had put into his trust. He was trusting in his riches. He was consumed with his wealth. Now, the big problem with that, of course, and the problem that we all have to be aware of is that Material wealth is not going to do us good in the long term. It's going to all pass away. In Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Jesus said, If your treasure's here, it's going to decay, go away, not be worth anything. You need to put your treasure where it will endure. So finally, in regards to this, this steward, a failed steward, one who wasn't seeing things clearly at all in regards to his possessions that God had given him, in the end, he was very sorrowful. He went away very sorrowful. And there's no indication that he ever came back. Now, obviously, we're reading between the lines somewhat there. There's a possibility he could have come back later in his life. But we don't have any indication that he ever came back seeking Jesus to make things right, to, to be a disciple, to do the things really necessary to inherit eternal life. Uh, he was a failed steward of great blessings. Now, before we pass on to the other side of this uh, uh, story, to another successful account, before we pass from that, we probably should come here just briefly, and it's not really the point of our lesson. But some people wonder, well, do I need to sell everything that I have in order to serve the Lord faithfully? Uh, in other words, some people believe that we should live a life of, of self-induced poverty, uh, maybe get rid of all of our personal possessions, perhaps live in communes and not own anything ourselves, some have that view. Some have expressed that view. Some try to follow that mindset. And I don't think it's biblical. And the reason why we don't think that's biblical is because other places in the Scriptures we read about people who had even significant personal possessions, Christians, 
who were living and serving under the guidance of the inspired apostles who did not live lives of self-induced poverty. And so we don't think that that's a requirement of all people of all time to give up everything they own in order to be disciples of Jesus. But what it is telling us is we ought to give up anything we have that is keeping us from being the faithful child of God that we ought to be. And if that, if it takes giving up all that we had, and in this case I think Jesus realized for this fellow it was a make-or-break situation. If he's got material possessions, they're going to consume him. He needs to get rid of them because he's not going to seek God until he does that. If, if we're like him, if we think like him, that would be the answer for us too. But that's not necessarily the answer given to everyone. And I don't believe that the Scriptures require us to be without personal possession, to be of, of physical zero wealth uh, or zero worth. I don't think that's required. We can talk more about that if we need to. But here's a case of a fellow who had a lot of things, but he didn't realize they were just temporarily entrusted to his stewardship and he failed in the big test. I want you to contrast him as a failed example with some people that I think serve as a great and worthy example of the kind of mindset that we need to possess. I call to your mind the Christians in the region called Macedonia. A little bit of background here. I think you will all remember that Paul had passed through this part of the world on his second missionary journey. Macedonia is, if you want to picture it geographically, the northern part of what today would be called the country of Greece. And as we said, Paul was there on his second missionary journey. And we know from the record in the book of Acts that he established churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea in Macedonia. Now, there may have over time been some more that generated from those initial three, but we know that at least those initial three cities, churches were established in them. So time passes on. And Christians in the city of Jerusalem fell into significant need. The saints in Jerusalem had been persecuted a lot, and they were in hard times, and they had a benevolent need. So on Paul's third missionary journey, he was going about through the churches that he had worked up and he was, that he had helped to establish, and he was working up a fund of benevolence to be carried back to the saints in Jerusalem. Paul was simply, as he was on his journeys, he was collecting those funds to serve simply not as an administrator, but simply as a messenger to carry those funds to the saints in Jerusalem. And so with that background in mind, he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to turn your text there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's, re he's writing to the church in Corinth and encouraging them to get busy and participate in this contribution for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And in order to motivate those Corinthians to do so, he references saints in Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us and unto us by the will of God. Well, 
Here we're going to see some people who had a right view of material things. They were just temporary stewards of God's blessings. They were people who had received God's grace. How do you receive God's grace? Notice it starts out, I would do you the wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. How do, how do you receive God's grace? How do you benefit from God's grace? We often call grace the unmerited favor of God. And I think that's a fitting or fair definition of the term. But how do you get it? Well, the book of Acts clearly points out that it's not an unconditional thing. God gives us unmerited favor, but He doesn't do so unconditionally. And we have accounts in those, we have accounts actually in Acts 16 and 17 of what took place in those churches of Macedonia. Paul went there. He preached the gospel. People believed and were obedient to it in Philippi. Lydia and the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, right? They heard and were obedient in Thessalonica. In Berea, the Bereans were called noble because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if the things Paul was telling them were true, Acts 17, verse 11. And so God's grace was bestowed upon these people, but it wasn't unconditional grace. They heard the truth, they accepted it, they obeyed it. That's how grace is bestowed then and now. That's how it's bestowed. And therefore, as the recipients of God's good grace, they were willing and open to share with others, share their material things with others. I think these people serve as a great example for us. We are recipients of God's grace, but I think all too often we don't think about opportunities to share what God has done with us both spiritually and physically with other people, and we ought to be. They were willing to do so. Now notice, these people had suffered affliction and were in deep poverty. Notice verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. The affliction that they were under probably was persecution because we know that in this time, Christians in all quarters were being persecuted severely really on trial for their faith. So it may well be that when he says that they uh, were in a great trial of affliction, he's talking about the, by our estimation, certainly intense persecution they were suffering. But notice he also talks about their deep poverty there. They were in much affliction. They were in deep poverty. History tells us that this region of Macedonia had once been a region that was rich in gold and silver. But the Roman Empire, of course, which was in control of all that now, had basically plundered that part of the world and taken their wealth away. And so while this would have been a region that once would have been wealthy, during the time of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great's father, as you might remember, was Philip of Macedon. And so this would have probably been a very rich area in times past. But now, under the influence of the Roman Empire, the Romans had plundered that area, and so it was known at that time to be a poor region. They were in deep poverty. Now, what did they do? So these people are persecuted. They don't have hardly any money. They're in deep poverty. What do they do? Well, Paul says they were willing to give beyond their power. Uh, they wanted to give. They were anxious to give. They were seeking to give. They were even willing to give more than reasonably could be expected of them to give. They were willing to give beyond their power. These Christians in Macedonia were really great people. 
And you've got to contrast them with the kinds of mentality that so many people have trying to figure out what's the bare minimum I can do to get by. When it comes to giving, what, what's the very least I have to give in order to imagine that God's happy with me? Because I don't want to give any more. I don't want to give a dollar more than, than what would be the minimum requirement. I just want, I just want to check that, check off that box. I want to say I gave. I want to, but I don't want to give any more than I have to. Or it could be of our time, our energy. In our service to God, are we seeing just how little we can do and get by? Or are we like the Macedonians who are willing to give beyond their power? Why are they willing to get beyond their power? Because God has blessed them. They've received His grace. And even though they were physically in deep poverty, they were rich spiritually, and they were willing to give beyond their power. It's interesting that the wording here uh, says in verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The way that that's expressed, if you were to put it in your own words, uh, it would be the idea of they wouldn't take no for an answer. They just kept begging us. They, can, they were constantly begging us that they could participate in this, uh, this, this money that was being collected to be taken to the needy saints at Jerusalem. They just insisted that they be allowed to participate in that offering. Now, Paul's words suggest they probably weren't in a position to reasonably, at least by worldly standards, reasonably, nobody would expect them to give anything. They didn't have much. They were in deep poverty. But they just kept begging to be able to be a participant in this work that was being done. Verse 2 speaks about the riches of their liberality. Their riches were not in literal money. Their riches were in this disposition that they had to serve God and to serve others. That's the riches. The riches of their liberality, not in money that the world would measure. The riches of their liberality was in their mindset that said, I want to do for God, I want to do for others, I want to do everything conceivably possible. That was the riches of their liberality. How do you get there? Here's some people who might have been feeling sorry for themselves and complaining that they didn't have much of what this world had to offer. But how do you get to this mindset where you're, you're anxious to give more than you're able and you're begging to be able to participate? How do you get to that place in your, in your thinking? Well, Paul explains it in verse 5 there, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. This they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. That's how they succeeded. This is the key. And this is the key to our stewardship of the things God has blessed us with. If we understand uh, that our first and ultimate commitment is to the Lord, then everything else becomes easy. Uh, giving financially. Giving of our time, our energy, serving in a dedicated way becomes easy when we give ourselves to the Lord. But I want to tell you that if we don't first give ourselves to the Lord, then it's going to be a constant battle. We're going to be fighting this constantly. Uh, what, what our worldly ambitions try to urge us to do versus what our spiritual understandings tell us we ought to be doing. And we're going to be in personal conflict continuously 
if we don't first give ourselves to the Lord. And these Christians did that. And it says, therefore, that they experienced an abundance of joy. Uh, in verse 2, there's the phrase, they had an abundance of joy. Now, what I really want you to contrast here is these two results. The rich young ruler was very sorrowful when he understood the requirements that the Lord was putting upon him. He was very sorrowful, and he went away, apparently never to seek the Lord again. These people experienced an abundance of joy, even though they were very poor in this world's goods. They experienced an abundance of joy, and as a whole, and the reason why is a whole different way of thinking about things. The rich young ruler was consumed by his things and couldn't serve God. The Macedonians didn't have much at all, but they were willing to give it all and more if it came to that in service to God. That's the idea of proper stewardship. We're just stewards. Our net worth, our in God's estimation, our ultimate net worth is zero because everything is His and we have it just for a little while as stewards to use in His service and to His glory. What are, what are we doing then? Which, one's, which, which one of those two stories that we told this morning properly represents us? We've actually got the same choices today that they had. I would argue, though, that perhaps the temptations for us as a, as a people, as a whole, greater than ever before, because we live in such a time of tremendous material prosperity. And it's very easy for us to become consumed by those things. And I think we have to constantly be on guard. So I just encourage you to remember, we're just stewards, just temporary stewards of the things that God has blessed us with. Thanks for listening this morning. And hope it's encouraged us all to be totally committed to the Lord, serving Him day by day. We're going to end the lesson with a song of invitation. As we sing this song, we'll be asking for you to think about your life and your situation and your standing before God. If you're not a Christian yet, you certainly need to make that decision. Hear the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. We'd be anxious to help you in that obedience this morning or to study with you more if you need more answers to questions so you can make that decision. If you're a Christian already, but you realize that your thinking as a steward hasn't been what it should be, you haven't really been dedicating yourself faithfully to serving God, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.